introduced uh, very reverends and most reverends and doctors, but this is the first time I've introduced an honorable. Everybody's been honorable, but this is the first time somebody has it in their title. So I'm really delighted tonight to introduce Honorable, honorable Rebecca McKelvey. She is an associate judge for District 13, St. Charles, Missouri Circuit Court. Rebecca is a refugee from Nicaragua at six years of age, came to America with her parents in 1980 shortly after the Sandinistas seized power from the Somoza regime. Rebecca's father was an architect and her mother was an attorney for the Somozan government. When the Sandinistas, Sandinistas seized power, anyone associated with the Somozan government was in danger of execution. So Maritza and Adonacio were forced to rebuild their lives and begin anew in a totally different country with their six-year-old child, Rebecca. Due to their strong Catholic faith, hard work, perseverance, and trust in God's will, they are able to become American citizens, small business owners, and have Rebecca attend college, and have Maritza earn a master's degree in Spanish literature. With a special interest in care for neglected and abused children, Rebecca found her way into the St. Charles, Missouri Prosecuting Attorney's Office as Assistant Prosecuting Attorney, Team Leader, Sex Crimes, Child Abuse Unit, and then was elected an associate judge for district number 13 of the St. Charles, Missouri Circuit Court. Rebecca and her husband of 20 years, Shane, live in St. Charles County with their three children, Shane, Ryan, and Sophia. Rebecca's story of hard work, perseverance, and faith in God proves that anything is possible in America. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Judge Rebecca McKelvey. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for the kind introduction. That, that was like my whole speech, so I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, I have some updates because I think that was uh, from maybe five or six years ago. But I want to thank you all uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak with you during your Lenten journey. And I want to share the journey of my family as we fled the darkness of war and communism and entered a new life here in the United States resplendent with hope and freedom. And I think it's um, a little bit uh, analogous to the journey that we're all on during Lent, from darkness to new life. My story is really about divine providence and trust in the will of God. And it's about a God that is always, always good, even when the circumstances in our lives really, really bad. It's a story about faithfulness, not my faithfulness or, or the faithfulness of my family, but it's the faithfulness of God to each and every one of us. My name is Rebecca Navarro McKelvey, and now I'm actually a circuit judge in St. Charles County. And the majority of my 20-year legal career has been spent advocating for children.
children that find themselves in the most unimaginable and tragic circumstances. Children whose trust has been betrayed by the people they should have been able to trust the most. Many times it's their parents or a close relative. Before I became a judge, I served as a child abuse and sex crimes prosecutor for St. Charles. And currently, I'm a juvenile judge overseeing cases of children that have been removed from abusive and neglectful homes and now find themselves in foster care through no fault of their own. My works provided me with an opportunity to help others. But much, much more importantly, it has allowed me to be a witness to the healing presence of God's mercy in the lives of many people, despite the deepest wounds. Now, unlike the children that I work with, I was truly blessed to be born to two people whose focus and energy and love was all given to me. My parents had seven miscarriages. They were married 10 years before they could have me. And some of you know from personal experience or from friends and relatives that the cross of infertility is a difficult one to bear. But they did, and I was very blessed to be here. However, like the kids that I serve, I did face some struggles before I could find a safe and permanent home. I came to the United States in 1980. I've always said at the age of six, and uh, I was talking to my mom the other day, and she said, do your math, that's five. Uh, so at the age of five, actually, I turned six that year, fleeing from civil war in my native Nicaragua in Central America. Now, some of you might remember Nicaragua, especially in the 1980s. Some of you might remember the Iran-Contra affair and Colonel Oliver North. All those things occurred during the second term of President Reagan's presidency. And so that's where I'm from. And my parents had been living a charmed life there. My mother, Maritza, was a government attorney, like I later became. And my father, Atanasio, was an architect and he had his own small but very successful architectural firm. On July 19, 1979, the communist Sandinista revolutionary guerrillas took the capital city of Managua. And our lives were changed like that in an instant. I'm sure all of you can relate to a moment in time that has changed you forever. Many times it's good, the birth of our child. Sometimes it's something horrible, the loss of a parent, a divorce. Well, this was one of those life-changing incidences for us. Managua is the city where my parents were lifelong residents. It's where I attended school, it's where they worked, it's where all my extended family lived. Now, my mother worked for the equivalent of the Social Security Department of the now overthrown, at that time, Somoza government. She wasn't a high-level official. She was just a regular government attorney, like you might see at your local courthouse. But under the new regime, anyone that had worked for the prior government was a target, and that included my mother. 
The People's Revolutionary Tribunals were going from neighborhood to neighborhood and house to house and seizing and dragging out former government workers, former government supporters, and holding summary trials on the sidewalk. Some of those summary trials resulted in summary executions on the same sidewalks. Private businesses were seized and nationalized. Private land that families and individuals had worked hard to purchase and have had for generations were taken and redistributed. 50,000 people were killed in that civil war and over 150,000 of us were forced to flee and become exiles. All this in a country that at that time only had a population of three million people. The first order for the communist government was to separate the people from God, something that proved very difficult to achieve in deeply Catholic Nicaragua. The Immaculate Conception of Mary is the patroness of Nicaragua, and the greatest and most highly anticipated holiday of the year is her feast day. Everything shuts down, banks, schools, everything. And so it was difficult for them to try to achieve that. My parents knew that they had to flee the country the day I came home from preschool, and I started singing a song about how there was no God except the state. Sadly, history is again repeating itself in Nicaragua. And once again, the Marxist government there is targeting the Holy Mother Church. Since April of 2018, the Sandinista government has been brutally repressing students, business leaders, and leading members of the Catholic Church for daring to speak out and peacefully demonstrate against the government's increasingly autocratic rule. In recent years, the international press, including the Washington Post, the BBC, and Reuters, have all reported on a pattern of human rights abuses by the government similar to those that were imposed on people in the 1980s. The church has tried to mediate a diplomatic solution between the government and the people with free and fair, elect free and fair elections as a mandate, but this has been to no avail. As a result, in this deeply Catholic country, Paramilitary squads have ransacked Catholic schools, destroyed religious images, including those of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. And Catholic clergy have been attacked physically on the streets. I ask you, as part of your Lenten journey, to keep our clergy and religious men and women in Nicaragua in your daily prayer intentions. Back in 1980, as it is today, when people have lost everything and they want a better life for their family. They hope to have an opportunity to come to the United States where anything is possible. My family was blessed by God to have that opportunity. Thanks to an uncle of mine, he was a doctor, a radiologist, and he had immigrated to Columbia, Missouri of all places, not Miami like every other Hispanic person, but he immigrated to Columbia in the 1950s. And he was teaching at the University of Missouri Columbia's medical school. 
And because he was a citizen, he was able to petition for his brother, my father, and us to come to the United States. On April 4, 1980, we arrived in the United States and began the long, hard road to rebuilding our lives. My mother was 35, my dad was 37, a whole decade younger than I am today. They spoke no English. They were only able to take a little money out of the country as the government has seized and frozen private bank accounts. I remember my mother sobbing when we landed at Lambert International Airport. She said to my father, our old lives are gone forever. And they were. We went from a comfortable home with a maid to living in a rented trailer in Columbia, Missouri. Now my parents were always good practicing Catholics, especially my mother. But when you lose everything, your home, your status in the community, your job, your friends, well, that kind of suffering either drives you to God or from God. In those early years, my mother would say, the Sandinista revolution took a lot from us, but it gave us a lot more because now there were no worldly distractions. We could focus completely on God. My mother and father immediately began to look for jobs and, and finding a job with limited English was difficult but not impossible. My dad found a job cleaning at a restaurant called Taco Tico and he just thought because of the name everybody there would speak Spanish. <laughs> but nobody did. It was not an authentic Hispanic restaurant. Uh, but they did give him a, a job cleaning and pretty soon both of my parents were involved in the fast food industry. Through those jobs, my parents met a man who would eventually put them on the path of what would be their personal and professional triumph. I believe that God sends us messages and messengers throughout our journey. Sometimes it's an event in our life. Sometimes it's a person. And for us, a man named Pan Chen was one such mes messenger. Mr. Chen was a wealthy, self-made Chinese immigrant. He had come to the United States as a young boy. He was an orphan. And he'd become an architect. And by the time my parents and I met him, he was a very well-respected businessman who owned a number of businesses in Colombia. He was impressed by my parents' work ethic, and he asked them to run his latest business venture, Dunkin' Donuts. So if anyone had asked my parents when they were in college, you know, would you be making donuts in the United States someday, they would have said, well, no, you're crazy. <laughs> but in life, you have to expect the unexpected and be willing to seize every opportunity that God puts in your path. After managing and working at Dunkin' Donuts, Mr. Chin decided to put my parents in charge of another business, the walk-in. You all know what a walk is that you use for Eastern Chinese food. Now my parents were in a really odd position of being Hispanic people, cooking Mandarin Chinese food in the middle of the United States. But again, expect the unexpected. Soon, we were able to move to a bigger and better trailer. 
And my trailer court, which is no longer there, it's called Valley High Trailer Court, it was literally down the hill from the University of Missouri Columbia, which is a place where I dreamed of attending someday when I was a little girl. In June of 1983, we left Columbia, and with Mr. Chin's blessing, we moved 30 miles down the road to my second capital home, and that's Jefferson City, Missouri. With savings and an interest-free loan from my very generous uncle, we rented an abandoned building at 322 East High Street, right in the middle of downtown Jefferson City. My father, being an architect, completely renovated the building, we lived on top, and the restaurant was on the bottom. And on September 7th, 1983, we opened our very own Chinese restaurant. And my father loves two things, this country and the St. Louis Cardinals. Nicaragua is probably the only country in Central America where the national pastime is not soccer, it's baseball. So whatever the name of this restaurant was gonna be, it was either gonna have America in it or Cardinals. And I said, Daddy, no one's going to want to eat Chinese food that's named Cardinals, believe me. So he settled on the American Walk. And when we started the restaurant, Mr. Chin made a very prophetic statement to my parents. He said, there is unlimited opportunity in the United States. You can do anything if you work hard. And the American people will give you a chance if you prove yourself. With this words in mind, we worked hard. In the restaurant, my parents worked days and nights, and I helped on the weekends and evenings. And in 1990, the American Walk won a Mid-Missouri Minority Business Award, complete with a letter from then-Governor John Ashcroft, who was also one of our customers. I spent a lot of happy years living above the restaurant. And one of the happiest was July 3rd, 1986, the day I and my family became naturalized American citizens. Living in America, working in that restaurant, led to opportunities that my parents and I could have never imagined, opportunities that could not have happened without God's providence. I received both an excellent private school and public school education, I was blessed to receive a scholarship to the University of Missouri-Columbia. And in 1993, just 13 years after leaving Valley High Trailer Court, my parents were able to buy their first home in the United States. While at Mizzou, I met and married my husband of now 25 years, because that, that speech was five years ago, <laughs> Shane McKelvey. And after 16 years of marriage, he became Catholic through our local RCIA program at St. Peter's in my parish in St. Charles. And I've been a cradle Catholic, as you can imagine, and, and my husband had just become a Catholic, and three months after he became Catholic, he got to go to the Holy Land. And here I am, and I've never gone to the Holy Land. Um, I sound a little bit bitter. But uh, in, in 2000, we completed our studies, I with my law degree and him with his MBA, and we came to St. Charles and began our life as young professionals. My mother always taught me that periodically, different parts of your life, you need to ask the Holy Spirit for the gift of discernment. Ask him, what do you really want me to do at this stage of my life? 
that will draw me closer to the kingdom of God. Well, I did that once I came and became a young professional. And in October 2003, he gave me an answer through a life-changing story on the local news. He wanted me to create my own nonprofit. At that time, I had a 10-month-old baby. His name is Shane. He's graduating this year and going to Mizzou also. And I was also pregnant with my second son, Ryan, although I didn't know it. And I have to add this because my daughter says, you never mentioned me in any of your speeches. And, and years later, about eight and a half years later, I had my daughter, Sophia. But back then, when my first son was just a baby, I was sitting at home watching the news, and I saw a story about another baby close in age to my son and another mother. The baby's name was Destiny Daniels, and this baby's mother was a teenage girl living in a truly impoverished and crime-ridden area in St. Louis City. She was suffering from a terrible mental illness. And on October 7, 2003, in full view of many witnesses, she grabbed Destiny, who was two and a half months old, by her ankle and swung her like a rag doll, striking her head on the curb over and over again until she died. I was shocked and saddened, but I felt a strange need to, to get involved with Destiny and her family. The news story made it appear as if she had no family. Her mother was arrested, taken into custody. The story didn't mention a father. So I called the St. Louis Medical Examiner's Office and I spoke to the chief investigator. I asked about Destiny and her family and what the protocol was for children that are deceased and don't have families. She told me that the city doesn't have much funding to take care of these children. And so when children are unclaimed, the city waits until they have several remains and then they pay a livery service to pick them all up at one time so that they don't make multiple trips and that's a cost savings. The children were buried in unmarked graves. They don't receive any services. They're not named. And to me, most heartbreaking of all, they're buried in the nude. I looked at my little boy and I knew that I couldn't let another day where a child could pass in our community without a name, without dignity. Dignity that's inherent to all of us because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So I started Garden of Innocence. It's a non-for-profit charity that provides burials and memorial services for abandoned children and infants in the custody of the medical examiner's office or local hospital morgues. To date, we've provided burial layettes, handmade clothing, caskets, flowers, music, religious services, a memorial stone, a grave, and most importantly, a name to over 50 children. Destiny was our first. Destiny ended up having a family. She had a grandmother. This grandmother, which I was able to meet, was indigent and needed help, and through the help of the entire community, we were able to give Destiny a proper burial. 
She was devastated both by the loss of her grandchild and then the loss of her own daughter to the criminal justice system. Several years after Destiny's death, I was working as a prosecutor at that time in the city of St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. Part of my duties were monitoring cases of individuals that had been found not guilty of a crime by reason of mental disease or defect, more commonly known as insanity. And those folks, um, although they were found not guilty, needed lifelong monitoring many times because of their crime. So one day I came across a file at my desk with a name I recognized, and it was Destiny's mother's name. I read her file, and I saw everything she had gone through and the devastation she suffered when she became lucid enough to understand what she had done. She had become catatonic at one point. She needed a feeding tube. And in her early 20s, um, she made a decision not to ever have children again due to her uh, psychiatric illness. It taught me a lesson reading that file that everyone, even criminals, have a story. And justice is not just unless it's also tempered with God's mercy and compassion. In February of 2015, I was blessed to come full circle and return to Nicaragua with 15 of my fellow parishioners from my parish, St. Peter's and St. Charles. We went there to perform humanitarian work for our sister parish in San Marcos, Nicaragua. And we worked with our Carmelite sisters there. In 2016, through the hard work of many individuals and through God's perfect will, I was elected as, as associate circuit judge in St. Charles County and became the county's first Hispanic judge in history. In 2020, I successfully ran and won election as St. Charles County Circuit Judge. I never would have thought that something like that would have been possible for me. But my life and the lives of my parents has been one of grace poured out because of God's infinite mercy. God family to this country. The only place on earth that where you start out has nothing to do with where you'll end up. If you want it and you work hard, you can have it, no matter where you come from or what baggage you come with. America is still the city on the hill that Matthew speaks of in the Bible. And we, as Catholics, and Americans are still the light of the world, especially in these troubling times. I hope that God blesses you and that you feel his love and providence every day, but especially during your Lenten journey. Thank you so much.